Imagine music is playing right now. Do 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 do. Everyone and welcome to Let's Pod This. We're so glad you're here with us today. It's a beautiful, sunny Friday afternoon in Oklahoma. I'm joined by two lovely people, Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Dude, can we make our theme music? It's a beautiful day by you two. We because that cannot because I'll <laughs> <laughs> let you know Bono personally. Also, it's not that would not fit the uh, motif of our episodes every week, right? There were plenty of weeks, including like two weeks ago. Right. Yeah, exactly right. And no, that, voice you hear, Ford, that voice you hear is uh, Bailey Perkins. Hello, ma'am. Hello, Andy. Hey, listeners. Thank you all for being here with us. Well, folks, we've passed the bill filing deadline for 2021. A record number of bills were filed, I think, close to 3,050, which is exceptional. And so uh, like many folks, I've spent the last roughly 22 hours sorting through bills. I have about 115 on my list right now, which is way more than we've ever had uh, on there. Oh, maybe it's more than that now. And, uh, And I'm just looking at bills that are related to elections, voting, redistricting, initiative petitions, ethics, and, uh, you know, Open Meeting Act, Open Record Act, and then a few other miscellaneous ones. And so our topic for today is going to be talking about some of these bills. We'll mention some of the silly ones that will probably go nowhere that are good for a news hit that we've already seen come out. Uh, We'll talk about the ones that are under the radar that will probably be very important, but haven't yet uh, been discussed in many cases because they don't yet have bill language in the body. And then we'll talk about what the three of us are paying attention to. But listeners, we would love to hear from you about what your priorities are. And so before we get into it, I want to say, if you haven't already joined the Let's Fix This mailing list, our email list, please do. You can go to our website, letsfixthis.org. Scroll to the bottom, sign up right there. Just and I don't even send one once a week because we're all busy. But over the next few days, I'm going to probably early next week, I'm going to send out a survey asking you about your priorities and about what issues matter to you. A very short, like Survey Monkey style thing. And I would love to hear from you. So if you haven't already joined our email list, please do. So you can be sure to respond to that survey. I'll also put it out on social media though, because I always like to get a good uh, a good sample response. So, and Andy, it's a good time to remind listeners as well that there are 3,500 bills out there. It doesn't mean that 3,500 bills are going to go through the process. And so you're going to read over the next week or two headlines from journalists um, and news stations and advocates about the different pieces of legislation that have been filed. Some of them might sound really outrageous. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to move through the process, but if you see something that draws concern for you or that you really like, definitely reach out to the bill author to express your concern or your excitement, 
but also reach out if you know what committee that bill has be, been assigned to, express your concern or your excitement to that committee chair as well, because they make or break which bills get on agendas and which ones don't. And so. That's exactly right. The uh, I spoke to leader Eccles last night and he said, uh, you know, this weekend, especially on Sunday, he is block out the whole day for him and his staff to go through all these bills because they have to start assigning them to committees. Uh, and that is, is as overwhelming as it feels to us. Like we're all looking at kind of specific niches of the bills, uh, but for leadership, they have to look at all of them and uh, point them into the right committee and they've got a i think a record number of committees this year too they, right they, they do have a, they created new committees because they but they also they can also any bill that they're like i don't really want to i don't know what to do with this i don't know where it should go and also we don't really want to hear it they can always just dump those into rules and so <laughs> uh you know you got you've got the rules committee where you can you can uh toss any bill that you don't have anywhere else to put it so that's right they do uh, seem to put a lot down there well and one example is like i think the judiciary committee has been divided into some subcommittees mm -hmm. and so there are some committees that are new but then there are some that are divided further and i don't know if that's because there was expected volumes of bills related to those matters or if they just wanted opportunities to give more people leadership opportunities, since there's a bigger majority. Oh, uh, that's true. They gotta have uh, gotta have more thrones for the uh, the princes. And most of these new committees too. Yeah, I, was, I think that's what you're gonna say, Andy. Most of these committees too, are like the the quote unquote new ones, are committees that have that they have periodically, right? So there are committees that they don't use every session, but periodically there is business that fits. In, in that committee. And so they kind of revive it, put a group together to deal with that business. And then you won't see that committee again, maybe, you know, for a few more sessions until a relevant piece of legislation comes up. So, so, so I don't think, even though they have like a lot of, they have a lot more committees than they had last time, I don't think any of them are truly like new. I think all the, I think all the committees are committees that have existed in various legislative sessions, just not in the last couple of years. Yeah, so you know, uh, one example of that of a committee they brought back is the states' rights committee, which they've not had for a few years. I don't know if that's because we've got a Democratic president now and a Republican majority here in the state house, um, but there's also all these redistricting committees, right, that they have once every ten years. And to Bailey's earlier point, they split the the judiciary committee into civil and criminal, but there is also the criminal justice and corrections committee that's separate from those two as well. So a lot of them get um, a little overlappy, like there's general government and then government modernization and efficiency and county municipal government. But there's a state's rights committee. I don't ever recall there being a state's rights committee. Yeah, uh, Sean Ashley tweeted about this a few days ago, and I want to say, they that it was there it may be four years ago honestly it may have been under the previous presidential administration was it there in like 1964 1968 <laughs> uh, that the, was that was that the last time that we used it i you know i am uh 
less interested in the fact that it's there and more interested in what bills will be assigned to it, right? I haven't, I guess I can search on Legiscan for states' rights. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one that's going to be assigned to it is the, the gun bill. So there's uh, Senator, um, oh man, who's this? From southwestern part of the state has got a bill that explicitly says this is a bill that would preempt all federal like laws as it relates to guns. And it's like, man, someone should tell him that you can't do that. <laughs> you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> um, There's this whole governing document and federalism that tells us that nothing can prevent. So uh, that's uh, yeah, Senator, I, I, and it, Senator Hamilton. And it might actually, it might actually use the words nullification, which again is a, uh, doctrine that has been repeatedly tested that doesn't hold water at least i mean again a legal scholar i am not but i, I think nullification has lost i think every time it's been tried um, so i imagine states rights the state's rights committee will see a lot of that kind of stuff bills that will are supposed to be largely symbolic they may or may not get heard they may or not pass when they do they'll be challenged in court and cost us a lot of money to defend so as a reminder to listeners, um, you can find bills by, you can search them by keyword. I don't think you can do it on the legislature's website, but we use, uh, I use Legiscan, which is legiscan.com. It's free and you can do, you can search by, for any state by just keywords. So as Scott was talking, I went to Legiscan and looked for the word preempt and found several bills. The one to which he's referring, the gun bill, is uh, from Senator Hamilton. It's Senate Bill 631. Um, I'm going to go in and like search for nullification now, too. I'm, I'm doing it as you speak. <laughs> I had a hunch. And what's fun about this is that you know over the years, we have tracked a few keywords, like sunscreen for a listener, friend of the pod, Effie Rourke. And there are no bills involving the word sunscreen this year. However, as most of us know now, there is a bill involving the word Bigfoot. Two words, actually. I searched with it pushed together. It's, it is two words, Bigfoot. This does not refer to um, myself or Pat McFerrin or folks that wear a large size shoe. This is a, uh, a bill to create a hunting license for Bigfoot. And this is, I think this falls under the, well, I will say at first blush, this falls under the category of bills that make a splash but won't go anywhere. However, I think it's like it's really a tourism bill, right? It's not. He specifically said it's not about hunting Bigfoot. It's not about killing Bigfoot. It's about capturing Bigfoot, and he's opening a partner with the tourism bureau or department to like create some merch, right? And someone I follow on Twitter has a Bigfoot hunting license and some stickers from Florida or some other state, and so perhaps this is one of their creative ways to raise revenue i mean that's what i heard some people some folks kind of going back and forth on twitter about it and they were they were not they were kind of envisioning this as almost like a you know bachelor or bachelorette party thing that you would buy you'd buy like licenses for your whole crew and spend some time like in whatever part of the state that i guess the sasquatch is supposed to live and you know take some beer and say you went on a bigfoot hunt i guess you know i mean that's it's uh at, with with that justification, 
it it doesn't even make the top ten of most ridiculous bills that I've seen filed in the Oklahoma State legislature. So I the, the 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 Bigfoot hunting bill doesn't bother me uh, doesn't doesn't bother me at all. There are several healthcare bills that I'm uh, that I'm I don't I don't have a, a full list of everything that we're that we're we're going to be looking at in in healthcare. Um, the state medical association will follow those really really closely and and looks at those but i did a quick search today looking for uh bills related specifically to medicaid and um came up with a couple interesting hits so speaker mccall speaker of the house and kind of the the head the head honcho the head cheese if you will at the legislature he and uh senator treat over in the senate uh speaker mccall has two shell bills house joint resolutions 10 11 and 10 12. Um, they're just ballot titles right now, um, but they're they're constitutional amendments. Uh, one is called the Oklahoma Medicaid Act of 2021. The other is called the Oklahoma Medicaid Reform Act of uh, 2021. Right now, these bills just have two pages, and essentially, it would uh, refer to the people for their approval or rejection. Uh, a uh, uh, bill that would add an amendment to the Constitution of Oklahoma by adding a new Section Five to read the Oklahoma Medicaid Reform Act, but no um, no notes in the bill about what that would do. Also, Senator Roberts, Senator Sh- uh, Sean, Ro- or Representative Sean Roberts, rather, he's got House Joint Resolution 1041, which is also a constitutional amendment to repeal Medicaid expansion and un- undo, undo Medicaid expansion that um, uh, was approved by a razor thin margin by the, uh, the, the people of Oklahoma. Uh, recently, so I I don't I don't know what those are about, but you can bet I'll be watching them closely. So, do you know? Do you guys know how many um, shell bills there are? I'm assuming there's also a record number of shell bills this year. I don't know how many there are. I know there's I know there's a bunch now. Obviously, you know shell bills you can only have in the House. The Senate is not allowed to file shell shell bills. Um, so you can. And it's kind of hard to. I don't. I don't. I don't have a good way. If somebody can tweet at me or text me or something, I don't have a good way to like immediately identify a shell bill. You have to like open it up and like, oh, this sounds like it does something major, but it's three lines long. That's a shell bill. Also, most of the shell bills are going to be carried by leadership, right? So this is going to be Speaker McCall, Leader Eccles. They're going to be the ones who have most of the shell bills because they kind of have their pulse on what they might need that vehicle for later in session. Well, and for our new listeners, I think that's an important thing to learn and remember is that those shell bills um, may not get text on them until April or May because there are negotiations and conversations happening during session to assess how uh, the majority bodies want to approach policy decisions, especially on something as big as um, the Medicaid program and how to fund it and different things. And so... Um, one day we'll wake up and read <laughs> language in a bill uh, after negotiations have happened behind the scenes on how the bodies want to approach um, a policy decision. And typically if it's filed by um, someone like the Speaker of the House, um, it's likely going to be a measure that's going to carry a lot of weight that will likely move forward in the process. And Bailey, I want to—I th- would throw in there like a hundred percent to what you said, but also 
not only will we not see language for these bills until maybe April or May, sometimes you don't see language for these bills until 15 minutes before they're voted on in committee. I yes. mean, that happens like it's not even a deal where like, oh, the, you'll hammer out the language, then it'll be a week, like especially bills that can be really contentious like this. I mean, it's they'll they'll file the bill and move it to committee. I mean, literally minutes before they take a vote on it. Yeah. And that's uh, listeners, if you are interested in how to track legislation and some of the, the key words, um, I, we post published a blog yesterday um, on bill filing deadline. Um, that's about how to track legislation. And it includes a video that I made yesterday. That's a walkthrough of Legiscan as well as the legislative tracking stuff on the legislature's website. And it's, I don't know, 14 minutes long. It's hopefully helpful. But I mentioned in that blog post, Scott, your point, um, that often language, particularly when it comes to important and contentious bills like the budget, uh, potentially like the redistricting maps, they have a nasty habit of not releasing that information until hours or minutes before it's heard in committee and or voted on on, on the, the floor. floor on the floor right which is nuts because this you know I'm Bailey I'm sure you have the same experience that whenever I try to write up a summary of the legislative process your brain starts ticking off all the exceptions to the rules right where yeah. it's like well here's how it happens except that it doesn't so much of the time there are so many times that they scoot around it they will move bills direct to the floor that haven't gone through any committees and it's like how does that because the important thing to remember is that the legislature decides like on organization day um their rules of decorum so they may have even put rules in place for this session that might give them in ways to go around things that typically fall in the way that they have done business in the past. So it gives them those kind of um, almost like scapegoats to be able to, to get around what the typical rules would be. Yeah, and sometimes that could be for legitimate purposes, right? Like let's say an emergency such as a global pandemic oh, yeah. pops up in the middle of session and they've got to very quickly pass some legislation. Fortunately, they were already in session, they could do that. Um, those things happen on occasion. Uh, but more often than not, we kind of know, you know, what days, week, months in advance, what's going to happen. Um, if you guys are cool, I'd like to, I've, I've, I've got a spreadsheet going. I've got some bills I wanted to mention and um, that we will probably hear about at some point in the next four months. And we can happily chat about them as we go along. Does that sound okay? Sounds good. Great. All right. So uh, first up on my list is Senate Bill 913 from Senator Daniels, which I believe will give the legislature the authority to not just approve administrative rules for state agencies, but to repeal them. And that's like, that was the new word that was added. Um, and I think that's going, it's maybe a sleeper bill of interest for a lot of people. I need to reach out to like, the Public Employees Association, someone like that, to kind of see if this is a concern or if it's fine, right? This is, I just happened to, to run into it under one of my search terms and thought that was interesting. Um, another one, and I'm sure Scott has feelings about this one, House Bill 1591 from Representative Provenzano will eliminate 
the what would eliminate the statewide virtual charter school board and assign all of its duties to the state department of education so i think this has been argued for a while that why do we have the state department of education that oversees all of the public schools and then we have this like shadow board that oversees just virtual charter schools I mean, and the argument is that charter schools are public schools. So if they are public schools, then why aren't they um, overseen by um, the elected body that oversees public institutions? So, and when I say elected body, I'm, I'm meaning the, the state superintendent. So if, if charter schools are truly public schools, then that argument tracks that. Why doesn't OSD oversee them? Yeah. Um, you know, Senator Dom has a bunch of bills that will get news. Some of them already have. He's got another abortion heartbeat bill, um, which has been ruled unconstitutional many times here and elsewhere. Uh, and there's a, a bunch of other bills like that. And listeners, you're going to read a lot of um, preemption bills. So that's something just to, to prepare for is you're going to read bills that will try to restrict municipalities from being able to make different decisions on a lot of things. It doesn't mean that's going to advance in the process, but you're going to see a lot of bills filed in that way. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I think the way that most people perhaps think about government is that the federal government makes laws for the whole country and then states can you know make their laws and they might be slightly more stringent. So the federal government legislation is generally non-specific and somewhat broad yeah and then the states are like okay well here's our rules on it and and then cities might be a little tighter still right like more localized but what we've seen in oklahoma is um a strong pushback against federal rules saying you know you can't do that only we can do that um and you know federal government your laws were too restrictive but at the same time, they want to tell cities that cities can't be more restrictive for things like mask mandates will come up this year. But in the past, things like uh, plastic bag usage, right? Like there was a plastic bag bill a few years ago that they, the state preempted cities and said cities are not allowed to ban disposable plastic trash bags or like grocery sacks or something. And or I think there may have been one that said, you know, cities can't ban soda pop, right? Like, and as if it's, it's just a funny thing to say you can't do, you can't ban something. Is that, does that, those preemption bills seem weird to you guys at all? Yeah, they're always weird. I like, I mean, and like, you know, and, and I shouldn't say they're always weird. And both sides do this, if we're being honest, right? Like at the moment, what we've seen a lot in Oklahoma is that, you know, in some of our urban centers, specifically Oklahoma City and Tulsa, there's discussions about doing things like raising a minimum wage. And the federal, the state legislature has stepped in to say, no, you can't do that. But some of these preemption bills are responses to things that are talked about at the national level that are you know, garner a lot of attention that no one is actually trying to do in Oklahoma. I mean, maybe Norman had a discussion about banning plastic bags, but I don't think that Oklahoma City or Tulsa ever has, right? You know, New York City several years ago under Mayor Bloomberg um, 
they passed a law limiting the size of sodas that you can get in there. Well, we're not going to let cities do that in Oklahoma. Well, nobody wanted to. No one's ever talked about that in Oklahoma. So these are bills that are oftentimes symbolic and as much about making a statement as they are about actually governing, right? And um, it's it's you know I mean the ones that we're the ones that we're going to see this year um, that are actually I think you know, depending on what committees they're assigned to can get contentious is one, you know, Senator Dom has a bill that would prohibit cities from establishing mask mandates. Um, because, you know, I don't know if Senator Dom thinks that COVID is fake or if he thinks that masks don't work, or if he just thinks that um, you shouldn't have to wear one because he thinks they're hot and uncomfortable. I don't, I don't know. I think it's more of the, the, the government can't tell me what I can or can't do. The government can't tell me I'm going to walk into a building and how I need to, to be dressed to walk into a building. You know, so he's he's got his mask mandate preemption bill, but then Governor Stitt, I don't know, I have not seen if there is legislation to this effect, but Governor Stitt has at least talked about legislation that would essentially say um, individual school districts don't have the power to decide things like mask mandates, virtual versus in-person learning, um, and that there would be some sort of statewide policy that all the districts would have to follow because um, the governor has been um, really harping on the need to get all of our kids back in in-person school, which in theory is absolutely what should happen um, provided that it is safe. And um, provided that it is safe is doing a lot of work in that sentence. <laughs> um, so uh, th those are two kind of preemption bills that I think will um, – um or preemption you know subjects whatever you want to call it that i think will get a lot of attention this session well and to your point scott i i, I think that over the next four years we're going to see a lot of preemptive legislation um and i, I think i'm thinking even andy to um senate bill 913 that you were referencing earlier because if this new administration tackles a lot of issues from the regulatory lens and adds more latitude for states to take advantage of different services. If that control is then given to the legislature to be able to decide what things the state can or can't take advantage of, it then prevents Oklahoma to be able to take full advantage of federal dollars or um, federal programs. And so um, it also takes that power away from the governor to then direct what's happening among um, agency bodies, right? And so I, I really do believe that this idea of there, there's a constant um, dissonance between the local control argument and then preventing people from being able to make those decisions, you know? Because even at our um, administrative level, like tying the hands of agencies to not be able to take their options into consideration is taking local control away, right? And so um, I think that's something that um, our listeners should pay very close attention to this legislative session, but over time on what things are backhanded ways to prevent 
municipalities and even state agencies from being able to enact any kind of policies that come down from the federal level. Yeah, that's very interesting to watch. Speaking of federal level stuff, uh, there are a number of bills involving audits to elections. There was one, I think, from Senator Dom as well, uh, and that would, I think, demand a recount. Um, there's some bills about recounts. So things, any issue I think that has come up in the last six months, right, is going to be, there's a bill for it, whether it needs to be or not. Uh, and again, to Bailey's point earlier, a lot of these may not be heard. Um, there's a few bills that will be, that seek to modify the date of like school board elections to help consolidate election days, which I think is a good move, right? Uh, Leader Eccles has one of those. That's actually why I reached out to him last night. Um, because some of that stuff is real confusing and it'll get them onto a more regular schedule. When it comes to... And wouldn't it uh, save money over time to not have as many elections? Man, you know, I said this to him last night, that if we could consolidate elections and have them just like four times a year, right? Quarterly, March, June, August, November, whatever, so that you've got time for you can space out municipal elections and county elections and the school board elections. So they're not on the same, you know, we don't want to have 20 page ballots for all the people who have ballot fatigue, um, but we could space them out and have room for primaries and general elections. And if we couple that with some kind of ranked choice voting or open primaries, then you could con consolidate even further. Yeah, you wouldn't, you could have primaries, but you wouldn't have to have primary runoffs, right? Which is always, a, you know, a silly thing because in many cases you have three elections for one seat. So for example, I feel like the um, city council race for Ward 1 in Oklahoma City mm -hmm. will end up being that way because I got my ballot in the mail and there's about eight or nine people vying for that open seat. And so it's inevitable for a runoff to take place. Right. The so. chances of any one of them getting more than 50 is very slim, <laughs> but that's a great argument for ranked choice voting right there. Right. Cause you could get your ballot. And if you ranked them in order of preference, right? Like I like this person the most and this person second and, and then everyone votes, then everyone's vote would count. And you know, if, if someone gets more than 50%, they win. If no one person gets more than 50%, whoever was last, all of those votes get reallocated to their second choice votes and then so on until someone gets more than 50%, which is a great way to do it. And a number of other cities, including New York City, the largest city in the country, now use ranked choice voting for that very reason. You know who ranked choice voting is not great for, Andy? Who? The parties. Well, yes. And, you know, so... <laughs> I mean, so it's there's some states, including Texas, that use ranked choice voting for the party um, primaries, right? Because primaries are essentially, I mean, essentially primaries are publicly funded popularity contests for political parties, right? Like, it's just Republicans getting to pick Republicans, it's Democrats getting to pick Democrats to put forth their party's candidate, but we have to pay for it regardless. And there are at least two bills I've seen that would actually affect that where it would, you know, a lot of people complain that if a seat only has two candidates, 
but they're both from the same party. For example, let's say there's two Republicans that are running for uh, a state house seat, no Democrats, no independents. Then that representative is chosen in the primary election. Right. And that means only Republican voters were allowed to vote in it. And that happens very often for Oklahoma. Yes, yes. And it happens on the other side too, right? You could have only Democrats run or something. And so there's a couple of bills that would say, if that's the case, if there are you know, only members um, from one party, whether it's, let's say there's five Republicans that all run for one seat, then there would be a primary. And then the top two from that would go to the general. And if there's only two candidates that file, they both automatically. So regardless, you end up with two candidates on the ballot for the general so that everyone can vote on who actually will hold that seat, which I think is a pretty smart bill. We'll see if it gets a hearing, but I think it's a smart bill. Well, and even if we needed to experiment on, you know, how this works, we do have nonpartisan elections that take place. And so those might be the best ways to get a, a demonstration on how ranked choice voting works to then get people's comfort levels to apply them to our partisan races. Yeah. You know, Bailey, while we're talking something, well, first of all, I want to say one of those primary bypass bills I just mentioned is House Bill 1844 from Representative Fugate. I see it on my screen here. So if you're looking for it, that's one of them, but I know there's more than that. Um, I've, as I've looked through these, Bailey, a lot of bills I've noticed are duplicative, like the the same language in two or more bills from two or more legislators. Uh, is that normal? Is that pretty common? And when why? It is. Um, it's common for strategy purposes. And so when you're working with multiple bill authors and you have multiple vehicles at play for legislation, it gives, particularly this is more strategy on the lens of organizations and advocacy groups that are pushing for a specific type of legislation. And so if you have multiple bills, then you can see which authors would be best to carry it, who's most likely to get it through certain committees. Sometimes even different bills are assigned to different committees, right? So all of those, or they may have two different paths. Maybe there may be other priorities on the Senate side. So there may be um, opportunity for the bill to advance on the House side. And so you have a House version and a Senate version to see which one has the greatest possibility of moving through the process. And so it doesn't always have to be a bad thing that there's multiple versions of a bill, um, but it's typically a, a tactic to figure out what's the best path to get that bill through the process. Yeah, I, I wanna, I'll highlight two examples of this. Um, one, they're both from the House actually. So House Bill 2103 and 2623 are identical. They both create the Oklahoma Restoration of Voting Rights Act, modify voting rights of certain convicted felons, blah, blah, blah. It's the same ballot title and the same language. Um, 2103 is authored by Representative Turner, who's newly elected, new to the legislature. And then 2623 is represented by, or authored by Representative Cindy Munson, who has been around for a few terms and has a different type of relationship. And in that scenario, I can see exactly what you were talking about, Bailey, where it, it 
you know, Representative Turner's new, and when you're new, it's tough to get legislation through. And whoever was, you know, backing this, I, you know, um, it could be just them, but I'm sure there's groups that are in support of this. Uh, it, it's, I think, politically strategic, right, to have Representative Munson also carry a version of it. In a very different way, uh, there are three House joint resolutions. And listeners, remember, a bill is like a statutory change. It's like a regular law. Joint resolutions are a, basically a bill that will become a ballot initiative, or not a, not a ballot initiative, but a ballot measure, a legislatively referred ballot measure. So HJR 1042, 1043, and 1044 are all authored by Speaker McCall. They all deal with the initiative petition process, and they all have the exact same language right now. So when you look at it, it's the same, and it's only one minor change. It changes the words percentum to a actual percentage. So it deals with the number of signatures you have to collect. My hunch on this is they have the, these, it's not really a shell bill because there's some language there, but that they have these joint resolutions out there so they can swap out the language down the road either to try to confuse us as we advocate against a change, right? <laughs> um, or um, as a way to um, put something else in there that has nothing to do with whatever that bill has to do with right now. Does that sound like a reasonable assumption? Well, or they could be trying to gauge their caucus on what paths are most feasible. So for example, I know a couple of years ago there were uh, different bills around changing the state question 640 threshold. And some had it at, you know, these are the number of, some had it like, I think I got two thirds, another bill had it at 60%. And so different members felt, you know, different perspectives of what that threshold should be. And so that's an example of how lawmakers or even caucuses can use different versions of similar legislation to see which path might work best to move forward. But also you see different bills. Um, you see sometimes the same or similar language filed by multiple lawmakers because oftentimes lawmakers are filing things that they are passionate about and they care about or that constituents have asked them to file. So there may not even be coordination on lawmaker A and lawmaker B on the same issue. Like, for example, years ago, there were multiple bills around the EITC, but that's because different advocacy organizations and, and even just different lawmakers themselves wanted to take that issue on. And so they filed legislation around that bill. And so none of them knew, you know, oh, I didn't realize such and such on this side of the aisle or this person on um the other side of the chamber, or even my colleague in my own caucus, you know, may have also filed that same bill. So sometimes it's just members filing things that they find as a priority, because if there's multiple people talking about the same things, and then there's a path forward on at least one of those bills, lawmakers can take credit. They can say, you know, I helped to advance and I helped to move policy on, on X issue. So, I mean, that's another lens to why people may see the same language in multiple bills by multiple lawmakers, or you may see in the case that Andy brought up, 
one lawmaker or one person in leadership may have three or four bills that have similar language, but may be used in different ways. Yeah, on these three bills from McCall, the bill title just says constitutional amendment, clarifying language, ballot title. So it's like as generic as it could possibly be uh, and for all three of those. But I, there are a number of bills to highlight your other point about having different thresholds. Uh, so there are a number of, of bills that deal with the initiative petition process that would change the threshold for passage at the ballot. So right now, if an initiative petition you know, becomes a state question and you get 50% plus one vote, right? So you know, we'll say a simple majority, then it passes, which is normal. That's how most elections work. They are one of their tactics to kind of clamp down on the initiative petition process. Uh, and I, we may have mentioned one of these previously, but they're looking at raising that threshold. So there's a couple of bills that say it would have to be 55%. Some bills say you have to be 60%. Some bills say you have to be a two-thirds, a 67% uh, of voters to support it in order for it to be passed. Um, and we heard 60 first. I would assume that's where they're going to end up. But um, re- all of them, you know, this is, I think, in a direct response to, to things like Medicaid expansion that passed with a very narrow margin, um, which probably also is part of the um, justification for some bills that add in statewide recounts if the margin of passage is like less than 1% or less than one half of 1%, some of those things. Uh, and so we'll be watching those all. Any kind of change to the election process, we'll be watching very closely. Well, and Oklahoma is one of the unique states that give the people the opportunity to participate in the policymaking process. And so some people argue that the rise in number of state questions, but also like the passage of certain state questions is a reflection that the legislature is not doing what the people want it to do, right? And so that's not a good feeling for the legislature. Or, you know, there's this conversation about whether there's a rural urban dynamic and how legislation is being passed through that process, right? And so some are even viewing these changes as a way to empower um, the the votes of folks in rural communities, right? And so it's just all interesting to see different takes of why the election process needs to be changed, particularly on um, state questions. Yeah, I, yeah, I, this whole, not this whole conversation that we're having here, but like this whole debate about changing the initiative petition process is really frustrating to me. And then it's like, you know, it's, I mean, to me, it's a great example of, of um, what the real objective here is that legislators don't like it when people of Oklahoma preempt them and do things that the legislature didn't want to do. Right. Like that's, that's, it's not that the, it's not that the initiative process needs to be changed or needs to be updated or needs to be improved. They just don't like it. Right. They don't like it, and they are trying to think of ways to justify changing it. Um, and they've decided to exploit the urban-rural divide that already exists and take action to kind of pit Oklahomans against each other in order to justify this thing that they want to do. Um, I mean, to me, this initiative petition process stuff is like it is it's politics at its worst, and um, it pisses me off. <laughs> 
that's fair. There's uh, there's a uh, I'm on an email list for a nationwide organization, the um, BISC, B-I-S-C, Ballot Initiative something. Um, and they have noted this across the country, right? That where, um, oh, Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, that's what it is. And if, you know, states that have this option, um, they've done it in recent years, and like Utah is a good example, where they passed Medicaid expansion, they passed medical marijuana, um, they actually pass independent redistricting. Uh, and so we've seen a lot of this change. I'll say progress, which I know is like a liberal buzzword, but like the possibility of moving our democracy forward um, is indeed progress. And if it's happening at the ballot instead of through the legislature, that doesn't necessarily mean that the system is broken. Um, it just means that, well, I guess it means it's broken in a different way. Speaking of medical marijuana, there are two bills from Representative Fetgetter, um, who is, you know, one of the, I'll say, champions of the cannabis industry in the state legislature. Um, <laughs> one would, Scott, I want to hear your response to this. House Bill 2179 would establish medical marijuana licenses for animal patients. <laughs> In case you've got like a depressed pig. Hey, but, but maybe, you know, you guys just heard my dog, Walter, running by barking outside. I can get this dog some dope. Maybe he'll calm down. Just give him the edible. Yeah. Are you are you going to like test the dog's urine to make sure that they're giving it to the dog? Are you going to... Are you going to put it in like dog food that tastes nasty to people? So people, I'm just curious. I'm curious how that's going to work and why, I mean, don't get me wrong. My dog's crazy. Maybe she would benefit from some weed. Um, I've never, I've never. I'm just picturing our two dogs like hanging out like Ching Chong now. Um, but are there other states that have allowed something of this nature to happen? So I wonder what the origin is. And that's another reminder to our listeners that you may hear of bills that you're going to also hear about in other states. So that's another trend that happens during legislative sessions is you have national organizations or entities that um, will work with lawmakers across the country to file certain pieces of legislation. So I do wonder what the origin of this particular bill is. Some quick definitions. Animal patient does not include livestock or food animals so it's you know no no animal that is raised or kept for profit so pigs horses cows fish those kind of things um i assume it is for like pets because you because it, it goes through the the department of or the veterinary medical examiners um board because you can get like Prozac for your dog and stuff. If it, you know, there's lots of medications that your pets may need. I assume it's just since we are treating marijuana as a medical uh, pharmaceutical, that this would just extend it to other animals. Perhaps more notably <laughs> than uh, animal patients with, uh, with some reefer is that uh, Representative Fetgetter also has House Bill 1961, which I think decriminalizes marijuana, most marijuana possession for anyone over the age of 21. I don't, 
my reading, I need to ask someone like Brian Jones or uh, Ryan Kiesel is if it um, if it's an actual legalization or if this is simply a decriminalization. Interesting. Yeah, Brian would be the one to ask about that. Another thing I'm curious to see, and I don't think we've talked about this yet, um, is how many bills we have that aren't just adapted from other states, but how many bills are being pushed by outside organizations. Um, we've talked about that before um, on the show. We usually, we usually talk about at the beginning of every session, but like, you know, one one kind of group that's famous for this is the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a group that goes around. They have like, you know, 20, 20 bills that are essentially the same that they go around and try to get legislators to pa- legislatures to pass in states all over the country. Uh, Oklahoma is notorious as being one of the states that passes the most of these, what do we call them? Like identical bills that are kind of going and passed from state to state. Model, we, we model legislation. Yeah, model, there we go. I was like, that is the term of art that was escaping me. We are notorious for passing lots and lots of model legislation. So I'm curious to see how many of, uh, how many of the bills we talked about today um, wind up actually being those not not bills that were dreamed up by their authors but bills that um their authors you know went to a convention or something and a, and a, a representative was there and said hey you look like you might be interested in carrying my bill that does some random thing that's um probably not important to the people of your state but we're going to pass it anyway well i do want to bring up one specific bill that's alarming Um, but is a reflection of model legislation that we're seeing across the country. So President Trump, before he left office, passed the 1776 commission bill that would prevent school districts from talking about, um, I believe it's the 1669 project. I I probably have the year wrong. 1619. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, 1619 project um, that talks about Black heritage and the um, experience of the Black diaspora starting at well before even slavery, right? And the response to that is that's viewed as unpatriotic and divisive. And so the legislation would repeal um, what would prevent schools from talking about divisive subjects. Well, when President Biden took office, one of the executive orders repealed that um, policy. And now we're seeing states try to supplant it in their legislatures. And so Senator Shane Jett has uh, one of those model legislations um, that would prevent schools from um, talking about things that are deemed divisive. And so things like race, some of the things that we're seeing even over the summer with Black Lives Matter and um, the protests that happened in, um, or the, the the mob rioting insurrectionist at the Capitol. So all of those things would be deemed divisive and schools would be prevented from talking about real history. And so I think that's a, a major concern, but we're seeing that legislation show up across the country because I believe it's on Arkansas's agenda as well. Yeah. Um... There are several bills that are along those lines um, this year that kind of say like, you know, anything that says that it they they couch themselves as being like anti-discrimination bills, 
uh, but it says like any bill that that assumes that someone because of their race or sex uh, or ethnicity is somehow like basically like if if based on their race or sex or ethnicity that means they're racist or somehow like complicit with racism that we can't talk about that you can't teach that nothing should promote that um which is like a just a very uh defensive stance right and scott you and i were texting earlier about rand paul well i think all three of us talking about rand paul's statement that was like basically like well you know i don't like that they're calling us racists and it's like is that it methinks thou dost protest too much right about <laughs> but it's even this erasure right of of history and so we and i i think that's part of what has fueled this tension and um American culture is these ideas that we want to honor, for example, Dr. King and paint him as this nonviolent figure and quote all his fluffy things, even though he was strongly, you know, an advocate for economic justice and he was pro-union and he organized workers, right? And so to not talk about those things whitewashes history and that's dangerous because then we're not walking in truth and freedom but instead we're we're continuing this trend of couching what it means to be a patriot and what it means to be america american through this lens of white supremacy and that's a huge huge problem that if we're truly moving forward and becoming you know race forward country and state that cares about people that we have to be able to to reconcile with the truth even when it's painful and so it's very damaging to to say we can't talk about history because it doesn't feel good and you know it's one of those things like to, what Rand paul specifically was saying is he wasn't even like you know when you listen to president biden's inaugural address he didn't call anybody a racist right he said, like, he said several times in different ways, like, systemic racism is bad, and that is something we have to wrestle with. And Rand Paul's response to that was, I mean, hell, he's he's basically calling me a racist. And it's like, okay, he did it, but the fact that you took it that way, um, what is that? You're kind of proving the point, right? <laughs> like, your defensiveness is proving is proving the need that we have to talk about this stuff, right? Um, um, and it is hard, and it is painful. And, um, you know, yeah, I think if... Uh, well, it's, it's stuff that we... It is stuff that we, we have to address in our society um, if we're ever going to move forward. And it's particularly, you know, it's, it is important all across... Um, the country and it's no less important in a state like Oklahoma where we have what at one point Bailey how many all black towns do we have in Oklahoma and how many of them are left um well like a couple couple of dozen all black towns we have more than any other state in the nation um and then we still have all black towns functioning I mean the first law on the books was um segregation in the state right and even it's ironic that somebody who is a member of a tribal nation is proposing legislation to prevent 
um, truthful conversations on our past? Because what does that mean even in conversations of divisiveness? Does it mean that we can't talk about the trail of tears in the way that we talk about um, like the land run? Are we not supposed to talk about stolen lands? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so um, it, it, it creates this kind of uh, weird, um, it's, it creates this, um, uh, what word am I trying to use? Um, it could be all, all bad to say that we can't talk about anything divisive, that we can't talk about race, gender, like, should, can we not talk about women's suffrage? Like, where are the boundaries even to what what is history? So, right. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it doesn't happen and it's not important. Preach. It's going to be an interesting session, guys. It's going to be an interesting session. But but to the point we were raising earlier, like there's going to be a lot of different bills that we're going to see from different parts of the country to either make policies and ideas that were pushed. Um, under the Trump administration, um, policies at the state level, or things that try to block um, and prevent federal influence on um, states. So that's definitely something we have to be watching for. Yeah. As we wind down here, I just want to um, mention two things that will indubitably come up this year. Uh, one is an extension of or a change to the Open Meetings Act to allow virtual meetings. What that looks like remains to be seen. Um, they There's I one, two, three, seven, eight bills, I think, that deal with this, uh, that, as we talked about earlier, some extend it through the end of the year, some extend it through next spring, some extend it four years, some extend it permanently. Uh, we know that Leader Eccles has said that making some substantial changes to the Open Meetings Act is one of his like legacy issues he wants to accomplish before he leaves the legislature, before he terms out. And so uh, I'm gonna be watching his bill the most closely, but I think, um, you know, uh, this pro tem treat also filed one today. And so we'll see uh, exactly what comes out of all of that. But the great thing is, is there's conversations for permanent change going forward so that we don't have to go back to these moments of, you know, we have the temporary policy and then we have this weird gap to then get us back to where we were. And so I'm um, looking forward and I'm hopeful that lawmakers will make that permanent approach to help give continuity to governments and organizations who have to abide by this important law. That's right. Senator Treat's bill actually even requires, it goes a step further and even requires that public entities, wherever possible, live stream their meetings for the public to watch, just like the legislature does their committee meetings and, and floor proceedings, um, which I think is admirable, right? Like I can see it that getting a lot of pushback. It says like where high speed internet exists and, you know, where it's possible. Um, but there will be, you know, city councils that just like set up a webcam across the room or something. You won't be able to really see or hear anything. But I mean, it's a step in the right direction, right? Maybe sometime we transparency we, is always good. That's right. You know, one of these days we'll have an infrastructure week where it's all about like digital stuff, where we can actually get some high speed internet and better equipment out to these rural areas so they can uh, participate and do things like podcast virtually from the safety of our own homes, like we're doing 
right this very minute. Okay, and then we'll end on the the one issue that we um, don't know yet, and that is the state budget, right? And we will undoubtedly cover this a lot more as the session bears on. But just so listeners know, at this point, we don't know anything, right? That'll come check back in like and we April. we won't until the fourth week of May, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, two uh, two hours uh, before they vote on it. The press corps will be scampering around the Capitol trying to get their hands on it, as will the Democrats. <laughs> and then there'll be great consternation, lots of waving arms and frustration, and then it'll pass. And we'll all go on vacation or like we did this year, just go home and sit there. Well, but a new dynamic that is in this legislature that hasn't been in previous legislatures is the supermajority that exists within both chambers. So theoretically should, and I, and I say theoretically because there's always factions within parties. And so even people within the same parties don't always have the same views on how priorities and dollars should be spent. But in theory, Republicans don't need any Democratic votes in order to pass a budget. And that's the first time, because before it was they needed, I think, at least one or two Democratic members to, to reach those thresholds. But now um, their majority has grown to the point where theoretically Republicans can do everything uh, unilaterally. So it'll be interesting to see how those conversations shake out. Um, and there's usually a blame game of, right, you know, Republicans say Democrats aren't doing this, Democrats say Republicans aren't doing that. But now, since there is a full supermajority, it'll be interesting to see how the majority is able to make those decisions for the budget. And it'll be just interesting to see, yeah, where those fissures might happen in the legislature. If they don't show up this year, they definitely will next year as we move into an election cycle, I'm sure. So, all right, Scott Bailey, thank you for being here. Thank you as always, sir. I echo that. <laughs> Listeners, thank you as well. Um, again, be sure to go to our website and subscribe to our mailing list. I promise not to spam you. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Let's Fix This Okay. Tell your friends about the podcast. It'll be very important over the next few months as we get into the legislative session lots of important content not that it's not anyway but even more all right well on that note decisions are made by those who show up have a great week